Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. This is the Gospel Feast Podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. In our last episode, we learned some profound truths, and I'd like to take a moment to just reflect on the Eastern feeling, the Eastern thinking that we should be embracing at this point in our studies, that we need to actually feel the profound depth of what we've learned. Important dates, important times were seen and foretold. So even though the Lord was rejected anciently, we don't have to make that same mistake. We can accept him as king, as Messiah, as our savior. If Daniel was so, so precise with his timelines and with his prediction of coming dates, then there's one last important date Daniel leaves for us. Well, the truth is that most Americans don't really know their history, and that's okay. There's a lot of history, and you have to kind of pick and choose. But I think sometimes we leave out parts that we don't want to know or we don't want others to know. One of the most amazing and little-known stories in American history is called The Great Disappointment. 
and it's actually very important in terms of religion. It took place in the fall of 1844, when upwards of 100,000 Christians gathered on hilltops, chapels, and fields across the United States, while others mocked them. Have you not been raptured yet? Even little children in the street got caught up in the fever, believing or mocking the national excitement. They would call out to adults, Have you got your ticket to go up into heaven yet? It was during America's second great religious awakening that strange signs had been seen in the heavens following the year 1798 AD, which Daniel called the time of the end. These astrological events were so stunning that people around the world began to suspect that the end was near. Here's a very short list of some of the more famous ones. The Humboldt and Bonplad Mexican Rain Fire of November 12, 1799. The Leonids Star Showers of 1799. The Lyrid Outbursts of 1803. The Balls of Fire and Stone Shower of April 26, 1803. The Meteorite of 1807. The Night the Stars Fell, November the 10th through the 12th of 1833 the Perseid Fulisades of 1839, and the Meteor Shower of 1844. Of these, let's explore one in more depth, the one known universally as the Night the Stars Fell. Over the course of three nights, starting in November 10, 1833, millions of people worldwide stood in absolute awe and horror as the Earth passed through a meteor shower like no other. It was so spectacular that it was called the greatest astronomical event in known history. Whole towns around the world gathered in churches or knelt in prayer, begging the Lord to forgive them in fear that the second coming was imminent. Even the prophet Joseph Smith commented in his journal, November 13th, about 4 o'clock a.m., I was awakened by Brother Davis knocking at my door and calling me to arise and behold the signs in the heavens. I arose and to my great joy beheld the stars fall from heaven like a shower of hailstones. Some at times appeared like great shooting meteors with long trails of light following in their course, and in numbers resembled large drops of rain in sunshine. These seemed to vanish when they fell behind the trees or came near the ground. Some of the long trains of light following the meteoric stars were visible for some seconds. These streaks would curl and twist up like serpents writhing. The appearance was beautiful, grand, and sublime beyond description, and it seems as if the artillery and fireworks of eternity were set in motion to enchant and entertain the saints, and terrify and awe the sinners of the earth. Beautiful and terrific as was the scenery, it will not fully compare with the time when the sun shall become black like sackcloth of hair, the moon like blood, and the stars fall to the earth." In accordance with this event, Brother Philo Dibble remembered the following humorous story. On one occasion, Joseph Smith was preaching in Kirtland, Ohio, in the fall of 1833. Quite a number of persons were present who did not belong to the church, and one man, more bitter and skeptical than others, made note with pencil and paper of a prophecy uttered on that occasion, wherein Joseph said that forty days shall not pass, and the stars shall fall from heaven. Such an event would certainly be very unusual and improbable to the natural man. And the skeptic wrote the words as a sure evidence to prove Joseph to be a false prophet. On the 39th day after the utterance of that prophecy, a man and brother in the church by the name of Joseph Hancock and another brother were out hunting game and got lost. 
They wandered about until night, when they found themselves at the house of this unbeliever, who exultingly produced this note of Joseph Smith's prophecy, and asked Brother Hancock what he thought of his prophet now that thirty-nine days had passed and the prophecy was not fulfilled. Brother Hancock was unmoved and quietly remarked, There is one night left of the time, and if Joseph said so, the stars will certainly fall tonight. The prophecy will all be fulfilled. The matter weighed upon the mind of Brother Hancock, who watched that night, and it proved to be the historical one, known in all the world as the night of the falling of the stars. He stayed that night at the house of the skeptical unbeliever, as it was too far from home to return by night, and in the midst of the falling of the stars, he went to the door of his host and called him out to witness what he had thought impossible and the most improbable thing that could happen especially as that was the last night in which Joseph Smith could be saved from the condemnation of a false prophet. The whole heavens were lit up with the falling meteors, and the countenance of the new spectator was plainly seen and closely watched by Brother Hancock, who said that he turned pale as death and spoke not a word. True to the promise of Amos, the Lord had forewarned his saints that the stars would fall. On the 22nd and 23rd of September, 1832, the prophet received the following, now known as Section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And verily I say unto you, Go ye forth unto the great and notable cities and villages, reproving the world in righteousness of all their unrighteousness and ungodly deeds. I will rend their kingdoms. I will not only shake the earth, but the starry heavens shall tremble. For I, the Lord, have put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. Ye cannot see it now, yet a little while, and ye shall see it, and know that I am, and that I will come and reign with my people. The purpose of these signs, of course, was to tell the world that God was again actively moving his hand among the nations, fulfilling his promises. Many began their search for restored truth, and in doing so came in contact with the Book of Mormon, and gathered with the saints of the Church of Jesus Christ. Others, however, believed differently, and began scouring the Bible for additional clues. You will remember that Daniel had said that much of his book and its signposts would be sealed until the end, before being openly understood. As Daniel was read anew, pieces which were incomprehensible before 1798 AD were starting to really make sense. It was during this time that a Baptist preacher named William Miller made an interesting biblical observation. Miller had been studying Daniel 8.14 when he read this, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. As he dug through the scriptures, he discovered that the starting date was known. Xerxes' decree to rebuild Jerusalem, overseen by Nehemiah, was a date that was known to both the Bible and secular history. Theorizing that the cleansing of the sanctuary had to mean the Lord's Day of Judgment, he did some simple math and declared that the Lord's second coming would take place in the year 1843. Later, he would revise his math and state that it would be in the fall of 1844. 457 B.C. plus 2,300 years equals 1844 A.D. That seems simple. When the Lord did not return by sunrise on October the 23rd of 1844, the date they felt that was the last possible date of his return, listless crowds of Christians returned to their homes despondent and with great weeping. Many abandoned Christianity completely, 
while others found creative ways to justify their delusions. Many pastors would claim that Christ must have returned to the earth invisibly, or that he had entered his heavenly holy of holies, and thus the second coming was merely a heaven event. Others simply returned to their original congregations embarrassed to have been overtaken by fantasy, as they would say. Miller died December 20, 1849. Out of his Millerite movement, many new churches arose, the most prominent being the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, among others. You will note that Daniel did not say that the Messiah would return, only that the sanctuary would be cleansed, which is another way of saying restored. Note the Lord to Joseph Smith during the same time. Doctrine and Covenants 21 verses 1 and 2 Behold, there shall be a record kept among you, and in it thou shalt be called a seer, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an elder of the church, being inspired of the Holy Ghost to lay the foundation thereof and to build it up unto the most holy faith. Jesus didn't come in 1844. That much is obvious. In fact, nothing of any religious importance involving Jesus Christ happened in 1844 at all. Or wait, did it? Turn with me to Doctrine and Covenants, section 135. We announce the martyrdom of Joseph Smith the prophet and Hiram Smith the patriarch. They were shot in Carthage jail on the 27th of June, 1844, about 5 o'clock p.m., by an armed mob, painted black, of about 150 to 200 persons. Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. In the short space of twenty years, he has brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God, and has been the means of publishing it on two continents, has sent the fullness of the everlasting gospel which it contained to the four quarters of the earth, has brought forth the revelations and commandments which compose this book of doctrine and covenants and many other wise documents and instructions for the benefit of the children of men, gathered many thousands of the Latter-day Saints, founded a great city, and left a fame and name that cannot be slain. He lived great, and he died great in the eyes of God and his people, and like most of the Lord's anointed in ancient times, has sealed his mission and his works with his own blood. And so has his brother Hiram. In life they were not divided, and in death they were not separated. Hiram Smith was 44 years old in February 1844, and Joseph Smith was 38 in December 1843, and henceforth their names will be classed among the martyrs of religion, and the reader in every nation will be reminded that the Book of Mormon and this Book of Doctrine and Covenants of the Church cost the best blood of the 19th century to bring them forth for the salvation of a ruined world. And that if the fire can scathe a green tree for the glory of God, how easy it will burn up the dry trees to purify the vineyard of corruption. They lived for glory, they died for glory, and glory is their eternal reward. From age to age shall their names go down in posterity as gems for the sanctified. Their innocent blood on the floor of Carthage jail is a broad seal affixed to Mormonism, that cannot be rejected by any court on earth. It is a witness to the truth of the everlasting gospel that all the world cannot impeach, and their innocent blood on the banner of liberty and on the Magna Carta of the United States is an ambassador for the religion of Jesus Christ, 
that will touch the hearts of honest men among all nations, and their innocent blood, with the innocent blood of all the martyrs under the altar that John saw, will cry unto the Lord of hosts till he avenges that blood on the earth. Amen. Will someone note the date? June 27, 1844. Joseph Smith preached again and again that it was his mission to restore a fullness of the everlasting gospel before the great and terrible day of the Lord's return. I submit to the honest listener that this is the meaning of Daniel's words so many thousands of years previously when he was told, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. It had nothing to do with the second coming. When one prayerfully studies the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the administration of the modern prophet Joseph Smith, one finds the cleansing of the sanctuary needed to prepare the world for a fruitful second coming. It would be the first time since the loss of Jerusalem's temple that every ordinance, sacrament, sealing power, temple, and priesthood rite, both Melchizedek and Aaronic, with all the keys necessary to do the works of God's grace, would be again upon the earth. The Lord gave Joseph Smith the power to cleanse the sanctuary, and he was faithful. He completed this prophecy and was required to seal his testimony with his own blood 2,300 years after the decree of 457 B.C. Like the Lord's triumphant entry, fulfilled on the very day foretold, no other event of any importance in the 1800s even comes close to Daniel's decree of 1844. And when the world read the proclamation announcing the prophecy foretold, like the Jews of old, they found no beauty in Joseph Smith to desire him. After the murder of God's two witnesses, Joseph and his brother Hiram, with their blood upon the altar of the earth, the Latter-day Saints were forced to leave the territorial boundaries of the United States and journey into the western wilderness of what would become in time the state of Utah. Brigham Young, like Peter of old, was the senior apostle after Joseph Smith. He took the reins of the church. In his sadness and wonder at the events unfolding, he received the following revelation from the Lord, now known as Doctrine and Covenants 136. Fear not thine enemies, for they are in mine hands, and I will do my pleasure with them. My people must be tried in all things, that they may be prepared to receive the glory that I have for them, even the glory of Zion, and he that will not bear chastisement is not worthy of my kingdom. Let him that is ignorant learn wisdom by humbling himself and calling upon the Lord his God, that his eyes may be opened that he may see, and his ears opened that he may hear. For my spirit is set forth into the world to enlighten the humble and contrite, and to the condemnation of the ungodly. Thy brethren have rejected you and your testimony, even the nation that has driven you out. And now cometh the day of their calamity, even the days of sorrow, like a woman that is taken in travail, and their sorrow shall be great unless they speedily repent, yea, very speedily. For they killed the prophets and them that were sent unto them, and they have shed innocent blood, which crieth from the ground against them. Therefore marvel not at these things, For ye are not yet pure, ye cannot yet bear my glory. But ye shall behold it if ye are faithful in keeping all of my words that I have given you, from the days of Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses to Jesus and his apostles, and from Jesus and his apostles to Joseph Smith, whom I did call upon by mine angels, my ministering servants, and by mine own voice out of the heavens, to bring forth my work." which foundation he did lay, and was faithful, and I took him to myself. 
Many have marveled because of his death, but it was needful that he should seal his testimony with his blood, that he might be honored and the wicked might be condemned. Have I not delivered you from your enemies, only in that I have left a witness of my name? Now therefore hearken, O ye people of my church, and ye elders listen together. You have received my kingdom. Before leaving this point, I would like to point out a handful of hypocritical theories based on ignorance at best, and arrogance at worst. First, when Jesus destroyed the Jewish culture, just as Daniel had said, by fulfilling the law of Moses, there were many who embraced the new Church of Jesus Christ. The first Christian converts were Jews, the most famous today being Saul of Tarsus, born again as Paul. Despite the many conversations, there were many others who did not want to let go of the past nor say goodbye to the culture they embraced. Even Peter needed a gentle push to let go of circumcision and accept the idea that filthy Gentiles had a place with the ceremonial clean. The powerful Jews of the day had every desire to preserve the status quo. They did not want to hand the scepter of religious power over to a band of fishermen and other rabble chosen by an outcast and a rebel they could not control, even if he did fulfill prophecy. The New Testament records several attempts they made to erase Christ, first by denying his resurrection, and later by stoning Stephen. They had even tried to murder Lazarus after he'd been resurrected, but they were unsuccessful. When the fair and open-minded Jews studied Daniel, they could not help but puzzle over the absolutely obvious conclusions we have explored together. Self-righteous rabbis had no recourse but to change the prophecy's previously accepted interpretation to remove Jesus' claim of messiahship. A couple of examples will suffice for the whole. Let's take Daniel 9:24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Passages such as these have proved greatly stressful to the honest in heart and chafing to a Jewish leadership uninterested in the truth. Explanations either clever or ridiculous have been devised. There is even evidence that they may have altered Moses' calendar to push it away from Jesus. The ancient rabbis, unwilling to embrace Peter and the apostles, explained away above types of scripture verses thus, In order that Israel will receive his full revenge against all those who have trespassed against him, from Babylon to the Romans, they must suffer tragic loss, so as to merit the Messiah, who will bring them the Holy of Holies and the Temple anew in the future. This interpretation justifies the Jewish belief that they as a people were made to suffer as an example to the world of faith and righteousness in trial. Great rabbis have called for curses to be placed on any Jew who used Daniel to calculate the date of the Messiah's coming. Here is the great Mamadides quoting the sages of Judah. Our sages declared, May the spirits of those who attempt to calculate the time of the Messiah's coming die. Why would they do this? He explains. Daniel has clarified for us the secret of the end times. Our wise men have forbidden the calculation of the days of the Messiah's appearance, so that the masses will not be confused into thinking that the time has passed. Rabbi Judah in the Babylonian Talmud, written about 189 AD, said, the times of Daniel's 70-week prophecy were over long ago. Rabbi Rabbah, in the same book taught, all the time limits for the redemption by the Messiah have passed. 
Perhaps the Jewish historian Josephus best explains the confusion and willful ignorance over Jesus and Daniel when he wrote in his history of the Jewish people. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of the Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 18. Now, before we condemn our Jewish kin in any way, it's only fair to say that the house of Israel, and the children of Judah in particular, have suffered terribly at the hands of their enemies. They have indeed been an example of faithfulness under pressure, so much so that the Lord himself commented. Excerpt taken from Zechariah chapter 1. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation. And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words, saying, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. In other words, as angry as God had been with the Jews— When he turned them over into Gentile hands, they were far crueler to his people than he himself would have been. Therefore, Gentiles watch out. Further note that not one single nation which sought the extermination of the children of Israel remains today. From the house of Pharaoh to Hitler's Third Reich, the Jews have outlasted them all. The foolish nations of the world would do well to remember this, as well as this promise, that at a future day, those who want to meet the Messiah will say, Zechariah chapter 8. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass, that ten men shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In regards to Christianity, the greatest backflips have been trying to explain away the promised great apostasy of masculine Christian priesthood authority after the destruction of Christ's apostles, until his promised restoration, and of course, Joseph Smith, Jr., the prophet. Protestants and Reformationalists have no trouble with the scriptural passages portraying Papal Rome as a second incarnation of Imperial Rome. They have long held that the Pope is nothing more than Caesar by another name, the Iron Dragon wrapped in a lambskin coat. The Catholics have their own fancy delusions about passages such as Daniel chapter 8, verse 12. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And also, Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, and before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, 
and a mouth speaking great things. Faithful Catholics cannot accept that this little horn is the Pope, and I certainly don't blame them. However, it has to be someone. They, through the use of numerous backflips, have made him out to be Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek king. This, of course, messes up their timeline for Jesus. But in their mind, it is arguably better for them to accept a confusing timeline for Jesus than that. The Pope is really the arrogant, loud-mouthed horn of Daniel and John's revelation. For me, the most annoying leaps of logic come from the Protestants and Pentecostals. Quick to attack everyone, they are particularly unchristlike in their anger towards Joseph Smith, the first president and prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Of their Reconstructionist attitude to Scripture, we will explore just one. In order to explain away the year 1844 A.D. and the numerous Scriptures about the Restoration, they have invented the notion that Daniel's prophecies only apply in broken chunks, thus destroying their beautiful simplicity. They invented gaps in the weeks and years used to explain away the truth and tell their flocks that 1844 had no special meaning. The Lord had his eye on these when he told the young prophet Joseph, Doctrine and Covenants 122 verses 1 through 3. The ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name, and fools shall have thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee, while the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand, and thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. We should not be overly surprised by any of this, because it too was foretold. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10. Because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved, God shall send them strong delusion, and they shall believe a lie. So it seems the great disappointment has a double meaning after all, one that is both great and terrible, and will yet be so again on a future morning. Most of the Jews of old did not want Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, it was a personal rejection. They did not want him and so he gathered those with ears to hear. Likewise, most of Christianity in our day does not want Joseph Smith, Jr., even though the heavens declared him, and scriptures they cling to for their salvation bear record of him. This should be all the witness they need, since it comes from Jesus Christ. We have quite literally witnessed the history of the world as viewed not just from Daniel in prophecy, but even from our own perspective, looking back in time. And so now having seen all of this, having learned all of this, there's one thing yet ahead of us, one thing yet we haven't witnessed, and that is the second visitation of the Son of Man, the Messiah's second visit to the earth, or as more commonly known in all of Christianity, the second coming. Daniel's going to have some things to say about that too. So we're going to, as we're out of time now, we're going to get to that in our next episode. We're grateful for everyone that has sent in questions. We ask you to please take the time to study the books, read along with us. And until our next feast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 